Welcome to Bill and Tony's Excellent Adventure in Music. Here are your hosts, Bill Fraser and Tony Sartu. Welcome to Bill and Tony's Excellent Adventure in Music. I'm Bill. And I'm Tony. And we're going to explore our love for music by sharing some facts and our thoughts on some of the best albums of all time. And today's album is Led Zeppelin IV by Led Zeppelin. On the 2003 Rolling Stone list, it was number 66. On the 2012 list, it was number 69. And in the most recent 2020 list, it was number 58. So some pretty consistent placing uh, over time. So let's start with our personal histories with this album. Bill, do you mind if I go first? I can't wait to hear your history on, on Led Zeppelin for. I did not grow up with Led Zeppelin. It wasn't something that I ever listened to as a kid when I started listening to music. So really my first exposure was after moving to New Jersey in eighth grade, I guess that was 83, 84, and then listening to the then the 1027 Firecracker 500, I think it was called, and then move yep. over to K-Rock after that. And Stairway was always there. And then it was always like the big four Led Zeppelin. And I was always like, Led Zeppelin? Gosh, you know, do they even belong there? So I really just never got into... My head is in my hand. I, I mean, you can see me, but nobody else can. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> So um, that's my history. I just never got into them. I've, I don't know if I even own any Led Zepp and definitely never listened to any. All right. Well, I similarly did not listen to much Led Zeppelin when I was younger because it wasn't really something that was played in my house. So my dad was Beach Boys. My mom was more disco. So really not something that was played in my house. Where I started to listen to Led Zeppelin is similarly, same type of K-Rock-ish time. And then in college, in college, all of my roommates in college absolutely loved Led Zeppelin and played it a lot. And I got it on rotation and it just became something that became a fabric of music that I would listen to. So you really came to it, you know, uh, late teens, early 20s? Late, late teens, early 20s. Yeah. All right, Tone. So I wanted to talk a little bit about listener feedback. And I wanted to say a big thank you to Nikki C, who had some really kind words to say about our Nevermind podcast. Nikki, thank you so much for reaching out to us. And thank you very much for appreciating all of the hard work and the research that we did on Butch Vig and the documentaries that we listened to on YouTube. Really, really appreciate the email. And thank you so much for reaching out to us. When you shared that story with me, one of the things that really struck me was you know, this whole idea that, you know, this isn't a live show, right? So we did that show months ago, and it's cool that somebody came to it months later and uh, felt compelled to write in. So many thanks, Nikki. Hopefully you're listening, and we hope you're enjoying other shows. So in that spirit, my comment is in a similar vein. Got this comment from Sophie in Montgomery, New Jersey. She and her family were going up into New York City to go see Billy Joel. And they were listening to our Stranger podcast on the way in. And as they're at the show, Billy Joel is, uh, uh, before he says the song, he's introducing uh, Always a Woman by saying, oh, this is song is from this, what was the name of the album? The Blue Sag Harbor, whatever, what was it? Cold Spring Harbor. It was the album that 
didn't get released or barely got released and it was terrible. It was recorded at the wrong sound and it was a terrible album. Nobody bought it. So he's introducing it. He names the album and the whole audience starts cheering. Sophie from Montgomery, New Jersey calls BS. She goes, nobody heard that album. There's no way anyone, all these people cheering heard that album. And immediately after, Billy Joel said, you guys are all liars. None of you have ever heard this album. So Sophie just, you know, was really pleased to have some inside information courtesy of our pod. So we'd love to hear from you. And there's lots of ways to contact us. You can reach us via email as Nikki did at bill at bntexcellent.com or Tony at bntexcellent.com. We're on social media at Bill and Tony Pod for Instagram and Twitter. We're on Facebook at BNT Excellent on Facebook. And then we, you know, both have our own Facebook pages and Twitter accounts and all those social media handles. So get us any way you can, but we'd love to hear from you. All right. With that business out of the way, Bill, do you want to tell us about the social and musical context at the time of this album? Absolutely. So we've done 1971 before. Um, so I'm going to just hit on some high points uh, because we talked about it with Hunky Dory when we did that pod. 1971 president was Richard Nixon. And it was a kind of polarizing year. It was the year of Roe v. Wade. It was the year of the publication of the Pentagon Papers that really highlighted the government involvement in kind of convincing the public to want to be involved in the Vietnam War. There was the humanitarian crisis in Bangladesh, which really led to that concert for Bangladesh that George Harrison had done in late 1971. There were a lot of technological advancements in 71, the first microprocessor and the first email. 1971 was also a great year in sports. You had the fight of the century between Joe Frazier and Muhammad Ali, the Dallas Cowboys winning their first Super Bowl, beating the Miami Dolphins, and the Milwaukee Bucks winning their first NBA championship behind Lou Alcindor, who would soon become Kareem Abdul-Jabbar. So that's a little bit about what was going on in 1971, Tone. You want to talk a little bit about the movies? The movies were interesting uh, in 71. And I don't remember us talking about these too much. So I'll just cover the top five. The number one movie, the top grossing movie of 1971 was a movie that I haven't even heard of. I mean, forget about seeing it. Never heard of it. It's called Billy Jack. Bill, have you heard about Billy Jack? Never heard it before in my life. And I like movies. I pay attention to movies. I've never heard of Billy Jack. It's a martial arts action drama following the story of a of a half Native American ex-Green Beret who takes on local officials and bullies in a small Western That's town. Right up my alley, dude. I need to see that. <laughs> well, honestly, it sounds like a little first bloody, doesn't it? Doesn't it sound like yeah, first seriously. blood a little bit? Yeah. So uh, you kind of wonder if... Uh, if First Blood was informed by Billy Jack, but it's not up my alley, so I don't plan on checking it out. Let me know how that turns I'm, out for you. I'm, I'm so going to see if I can fi find out the stream somewhere. Yeah. Uh, the number two movie was Fiddler on the Roof. Uh, you know, if very... I were a rich man. We got to start recording the, the video for this because the, <laughs> All the dancing long is amazing. Bitty, bitty <laughs> if I was a wealthy man. <laughs> Oh, jeez, you're killing me. <laughs> uh, Fiddler on the Roof won three Academy Awards, including Best Original Song. The number three movie was Diamonds Are Forever, the seventh James Bond film. Uh, and that one featured Connery and Jill St. John. The number four film was The French Connection. Uh, and that was won five 
Oscars that year, including Best Picture, Best Director. That's the one that starred uh, Gene Hackman and Roy Scheider. And then number five was something called Summer of 42, another movie I hadn't heard of. It's a coming-of-age movie set in World War II. Yeah, similar. Never yeah. never heard that one either. The, 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 the blurb says it's the story of a young boy who falls in love with a young war widow. And I guess the young war widow is Jennifer O'Neill. So I'm more likely to check out Summer of 42 than I am Billy Jack for whatever that's All right. Worth. So you, you take Summer of 42. I'll take Billy Jack and we can report back and we'll, on and it. And we'll pot on it? We'll pot on it. Exactly. Yeah. And you're, you're in movies 1971. Yeah. All right. So tell us about TV. TV. So number one Nielsen rated TV show of 1971. Boy, the way Bland Miller played. <laughs> I'm not Songs doing <laughs> made it right. Are you sure you didn't have any of the groanies today? <laughs> I'm positive. <laughs> so all in the family, number one rated Nielsen show. And I'd be remiss if I didn't mention the lead in that show was Carol O'Connor, who is, if I'm not mistaken, a distant relative of our close friend, James. Not so distant. I did some fact checking. I asked Elisa right. and she confirmed that Carol O'Connor is in fact the uncle of Marty O'Connor, James, James and Elisa's father. All right. There we so go. There Great uncle. Go. All right. Number two, the Flip Wilson show. And that was a comedy show starring, obviously, Flip Wilson. Number three, Marcus Welby, MD, and this is probably the prototype for all of the TV doctor dramas that we've got going on, whether it's ER or Grey's Anatomy or whatever. Marcus Welby is probably the OG. Number four is Gunsmoke with James Arness as Marshall Matt Dillon. And the number five, we've talked about the ABC movie of the week before. Mm -hmm. Number five was the ABC movie of the week. And what's awesome about that is this is 1971 and even all the way into my early teens, ABC movie of the week was really meaningful. It, it was a big yep. deal. Yeah. I remember watching it frequently. So absolutely. A couple other quick shouts to brand new 1971 TV shows. Remember a little show called the odd couple and another one called Sanford and son. And then last, but certainly not least, Cozy mystery prototype Columbo. So I've only checked out the first episode, but speaking of Columbo, there's a um, an homage uh, to Columbo called Poker Face. It's out on the Peacock Network. Oh, Poker stars. Face is awesome yeah. with uh, oh, Natasha Leone. Leon, awesome yeah. show. So I only saw the first one, really good, but you know maybe we'll uh, revisit Poker Face uh, after we get through this first season. And I can sing Poker Face. So. <laughs> All right. Well, thanks for the. Uh, uh, low down on TV. All right. So now we're on to what? The year in music, right? Absolutely. We typically start with the album. So the number one albums for the year, the start of the year was All Things Must Pass by George Harrison, which we covered this season. And it was number one for the first seven weeks of the year. The top seller for the year was the Jesus Christ Superstar soundtrack. Jesus Christ Superstar. <laughs> <laughs> All right, the uh, album that was number one for the most weeks, 15 consecutive weeks in the middle of the summer, was Tapestry by Carole King. Uh, the next most weeks at number one was Nine Weeks for Janis Joplin with Pearl. And other number ones of interest, there were Sticky Fingers by The Stones, Four Way Street by Crosby, Stills, Nash & Young, Every Picture Tells a Story by Rod Stewart, Imagine by John Lennon, 
and Santana 3 by Santana. The week that Led Zepp 4 was released, the number one album was the Shaft movie soundtrack. And the Hush last... mouth. <laughs> and the number one album at the end of the year was A Riot Going On by Sly and the Family Stone. So a couple others that I would mention that are all-time great albums in, in 71. We obviously talked about Hunky Dory in our first season. Joni Mitchell Blue, What's Going On by Marvin Gaye, Who's Next, and Fillmore East by the Allman Brothers. Okay, and then when we move over to the singles, the number one single at the start of the year was the was the double sider, My Sweet Lord, and the B-side, Isn't It a Pity? The number one overall single for the year was Joy to the World by Three Dog Night. I'm not singing it. <laughs> I love Three Dog Night. <laughs> not doing you, it. <laughs> you, you're not doing Jeremiah was a bullfrog. All right. Nope. Nope. Not doing it. <laughs> um, other notable number ones, Brown Sugar by The Stones, Me and Bobby McGee by Janice. The two-sider, uh, A and B, It's Too Late, and I Feel the Earth Move by Carol King. You've Got a Friend by James Taylor, Maggie May by Rod Stewart. Knock Three Times. I put this on here because it. I mentioned it uh, on an earlier show. That's Tony Orlando and Dawn. And that's really, you know, one of those songs that I remember from the earliest of days. Um, How Can You Mend a Broken Heart by the Bee Gees? You know, they weren't always disco. And that song is just great. It was an awesome ballad. Absolutely. You've got the theme from Shaft by Isaac Hayes. Bill, do you want to tell our younger listeners who Isaac Hayes is, who they might know in other ways? Anybody who is a current TV watcher would know Isaac Hayes as being chef on South Park. So believe it or not, chef from South Park actually was a top flight musician uh, besides being chef from South Park. (laughs) Isaac Hayes is awesome. And then the, uh, and then you've got family affair by Sly and the family stone and the year end uh, at the end of the year, the number one song was brand new key by Melanie, a song that I'm not familiar with. Yeah, not, not familiar with that one. The, the two that weren't on that list that kind of jumped out at me, Tone, were American Pie by Don McLean. The fact that that didn't make notable singles was interesting. And Just My Imagination by The Temptations. Yeah, it's, it's really strange how you know songs don't hit right away, but they end up being timeless classics. Yep. All right, so that's the musical background at the time. So where are we now? All right, so we're going to talk a little bit about the album itself now. So we're going to move into our album info and start off with a little info about the recording, the studio, and the production for Led Zeppelin IV. So Led Zeppelin IV was recorded between December 1970 and February 1971. It was recorded in a few different locations with a few different specific recording setups. So it started being recorded at Island Records, uh, which was a new studio on Basing Street in London. But about a month in, they moved to Headley Grange, which is where Led Zeppelin recorded a lot of of their albums. And it was actually used as a a place to record albums. It was a, a big country estate. And on top of Headley Grange, they brought the Rolling Stones mobile studio to Headley Grange. And they had a combination of using the Rolling Stones mobile studio and Headley Grange and Island Records. And that's really what was used to record Led Zeppelin IV. The album was produced by Jimmy Page. It was engineered and mixed by Andy Johns. And the lineup is the traditional Zeppelin lineup. John Bonham on drums, 
John Paul Jones on bass. He also did piano, mandolin, recorders, and synthesizer. Jimmy Page on everything guitar, mandolin. Obviously mentioned he was the producer. He also did all of the mastering and the digital remastering as well. And Plant did the vocals and the harmonica. And you know we'll talk about the harmonica when we get into the tracks a little bit. There were a couple of additional performers on the on the album that are of note, and I'll, I'll mention them both here. But I'll, I'll mention the one of them specifically a bit more, and there's something you might not know. Uh, so the two additional musicians, Sandy Denny, did vocals on Battle of Evermore, and Ian Stewart played piano on Rock and Roll. All right, Bill. So thanks a lot for that. That was really cool information. And before we go into our usual next segment, which is uh, you doing a little bit of a dive into the album art. I want to take this opportunity to talk about a movie that you and I both screened at the virtual Sundance Film Festival uh, this past year. It was called Squaring the Circle, the story of hypnosis. And this movie I knew we had to watch because it's about this art company called Hypnosis. And they did hundreds of classic rock album covers from uh, the early 70s all the way through to about 1983. And those album covers include 34 Pink Floyd album covers. I didn't know they did 34 albums, much less 34 albums with covers. They did nine Paul McCartney and or Wings albums and some really cool stories about their collaborations with Paul McCartney come up in the movie. And they were friendly with Led Zeppelin, but they didn't do the first four album covers. They did the last five. So Led Zeppelin four, they did not work on. But uh, I mentioned this only to say, you know, we talk about album art all the time. And for any of you album art fans, check out this movie. Great movie for anybody who loves album art and really just a fascinating story about how a lot of classic rock album covers were made. Yeah. And it's cool because the two founders, uh, Storm Thorgerson and Aubrey Powell, they just happened to be friendly with the Pink Floyd guys before Pink Floyd was a big deal. They just basically hung around Cambridge and went to the same bars and just knew each other. And then Pink Floyd got big. And uh, these guys said, oh, yeah, we'll do your albums. And and that's how they got started. And then the rest is uh, amazing history. So check it out. Squaring the Circle, the story of hypnosis. So with that, Bill, tell us about a Led Zeppelin album cover that wasn't done. The last one that wasn't done by hypnosis. So Led Zeppelin 4 is a very distinctive album cover. It is distinctive, but nondescript at the same time. You look at the album cover and what you see is an antique painting of an old man with a bundle of sticks on his back. And the painting is hanging on this peeling wall. And it's just captivating in its simplicity. So it is really... A very interesting stylization and the you know the rustic painting on top of this peeling wall it's just a fascinating album cover in my mind well what's kind of cool about it is like you know i i know this album cover and this peeling wall you, you get the sense that it's some sort of uh, dilapidated or you know wall but when you see the photos of the photo shoot and it's literally like a random wall on a building that's already completely knocked down. It's like like in a field, there's just this wall standing in a field and they hung this uh, painting on there. And, and the painting was a painting that Plant found at an antique like, shop in Reading. So he found this painting, thought it was a cool painting. He bought it and they used it for their album cover. All right, so Tone, now that we've covered the album cover, 
why don't we get into depth on the album itself? All right. So we know that it was released in 1971 and it's one of the most iconic and influential rock albums of all time. You know, whether or not it's your personal taste, there's no denying its place in the culture. And what is cool about it is it does blend blues and rock and even some folk and I don't know what you want to call the medieval. Actually, we can get into that with the track tracks. But, <laughs> Absolutely, you know, we're, that, we're that gonna dig. Medieval... We're gonna dig into the, the medieval Lord of the Rings stuff in in the in the tracks. Absolutely. Yeah. But what's interesting is is that, um, and I wouldn't have known this because I'm not a heavy metal fan. But many say that this is sort of the first heavy metal album. They they kind of create the genre. Led Zeppelin IV is the seventh best selling album of all time, and. Uh, they have claimed sales of 37 million units. And in, in with some of these older albums, there's a disparity between what they can yeah. document and what they say were moved. They have claimed sales of 37 million uh, units. They have certified units sold of 27 million worldwide with 23 million of those coming in the U.S. Do you think it's interesting? I mean, obviously the U.S. is bigger than the U.K., but they are a U.K. band. But boy, they seem much more important in America. Yeah, I mean, the, the whole blues rock tie was was huge in early 70s and into into 80s and is still huge for for us in the u.s right so i love the way that they actually layer and actually have such deep blues elements in what they do those are the parts that i like about uh, this album but i guess we'll get back to that so despite that enormous success unbelievably the album never hit number one on the charts at any point in time it peaked uh, that's at number really hard two. to believe yeah, yeah, that's so hard to believe. And yet it spent a total of 245 weeks on the charts. Their first three albums were very successful. But uh, while they were commercially successful, music critics were a little mixed on how they felt about well, They got a lot of heat for being extremely derivative. And this is their kind of F you to the music critics and saying we can be original. And whatever they did, it was a success because besides you know selling enormously, music critics loved it almost unanimously. So it was just a really well-received album commercially and critically. All right. So that's the album info. Um, that's the basic stuff. Anyone can find that on Wikipedia, but we're here to tell we're you something. We're going to dig deep. Might not know. All right. What you got, Tony? I can't wait. I can't wait to hear it. All right. So here's what I've got. This one actually isn't that deep. I'm sure a lot of, a lot of the Led Zepp fans know this, but do you know what the actual title of this album is? Well, it, it's untitled technically, but I've I've heard four, I've heard Zoso, and I've heard untitled. And uh, I think I've heard uh, Plant refer to it as the fourth album. So the key here is that there was no album title. This is not Led Zeppelin four. They didn't name it Led Zeppelin four, and they did that intentionally because, uh, as you were alluding to before, Bill, they took a lot of heat from the critics, and they said, you know what, we don't want to name this thing because we don't want to make it easy for you to compare it to something else. Therefore, maybe judge it more on its own instead of by comparison. And my other little nugget is the name of the band. Now, you talked about that classic lineup. That classic lineup toured together, but not as Led Zeppelin. They toured under the name of the New Yardbirds. Bill, do you know how that came about? Well, I know that Paige was in the Yardbirds, so I assume that is a tie-in to his time in the Yardbirds. Yeah. So he was in the Yardbirds, but he wasn't an original member. He was actually like a latecomer 
and he joins the uh, the Yardbirds as they're breaking up. And they're so at the end that they've got a tour booked in like, I don't know, Scandinavia or something like that. And they've got, you know, like a couple of dozen dates left. And the band said, uh-uh, we're done. We don't even want to do this tour. So Jimmy Page says, well, I'll do the tour. I'll, you know, I'll just call myself the Yardbirds and I'll put together a new band. And he assembles that band and it is the classic lineup of Led Zeppelin. So essentially Led Zeppelin went on tour before they had any Led Zeppelin songs. Well, and, and I heard that, you know, the, the name Led Zeppelin came from some, I don't remember which of his famous friends uh, basically said, you know, that's going to go over about as well as a, a lead balloon. And that's how they got Led yeah, Zeppelin. Yeah, I think it was one of the Fleetwood Mac guys. I, I want to say it was yeah. uh, uh, John McVie or, or something like that. Yeah, I don't, I, I don't remember the attribution, but I remember, yeah. I remember that was, you know, a, a thing. So All right. So that's my something you might know, not know. All right. So I'm going to I'm going to go a little bit from the angle of what might have been. And I'm going to cover off on some alternate reality scenarios of how things could have played out. So in 1965, a 16-year-old Terry Reed, lead singer, joined Peter Jay and the Jaywalkers. And the Rolling Stones heard Terry Reed and his singing in Peter Jay and the Jaywalkers, and they said, we want you to tour with us. So they asked them to tour with them on their 1966 tour. That tour, which was crazy, was the Stones fronted by Ike and Tina Turner, the Yardbirds, and Peter Jay and the Jaywalkers. So you mentioned the whole story about Paige and the Yardbirds falling apart and whatnot. And at the time, Paige was trying to get someone to sing in that new Yardbirds. So he went to Peter Jay and Jaywalker's lead singer, Terry Reed. That was his first choice. So he went to Terry Reed and said, Terry, I, I need a new lineup. Would you please join me and be my lead singer in this lineup? And Terry said, eh. I have a contract and I can't join you, but I have a mate that you probably want to talk to by the name of Robert Plant. And Paige went to see Plant and Plant and Bonham, who were childhood friends, were in a, a band at the time, Band of Joy, and Paige got a twofer with Plant and Bonham. So that's kind of part one of this, this something you might not know. Part two is Wait, Plant himself. So uh, are you going to talk about uh, John Paul Jones? I mean, you may as well uh, finish the, the circle. <laughs> well, John Paul Jones was, was with, was with page. So uh, that that's, you know, kind of what I know. So, well, yeah. Um, but he wasn't originally in the, uh, the New York, the Yardbirds either. So no, he wasn't in the Yardbirds, but page, yeah. but page brought him. I mean, as I understand it, page brought him in. So, but the way he brought him in was he actually wanted somebody. He was, he actually was like asking around, Hey, does anyone uh, know a bassist? And he didn't actually know uh, John Paul Jones. John Paul Jones's wife said, Hey, I heard that they're looking for uh, a bassist. Why don't you apply for the job? He applied for the job. I, I, that I didn't know. Yeah. Okay. yeah. That, that's, so, that's very cool. Yeah. That's very cool. All right. So speaking of applied for the job, thank you for the lead in. You just gave me an awesome lead in. So back in 1966, there's this little band called The Who. And, you know, the classic Who lineup, Townsend, Daltrey, Moon and Entwistle, they were at each other's throats. They were at an all time high of tension in, in the group. And Daltrey actually no showed for a, a series of shows that they had booked and the band was fed up. So 17-year-old Robert Plant showed up three nights in a row 
And he had designs of convincing Pete Townsend, Entwistle, and Moon that he should take over for Roger Daltrey wow. as the lead singer for The Who. And supposedly, there was real discussion around it. And ultimately, Townsend said, you know, I think I'm going to go with the devil I know. But imagine that Who lineup with Plant. <laughs> That's wild. I had never heard that story before. And you know what's crazy just like about these two stories is, you know, you've got Terry Reed at 16 and and Plant at 17. You think about Steve Winwood and Traffic at, I think he was like 16 or 17 at the time. Yep. Gosh, I mean, they're basically boys, you know? Yep. They're teenagers. They're legit like high school teenager age, right? So Gosh, yeah, that's crazy. Absolutely. That's amazing. So the, the last piece that I'll, I'll mention is on, uh, I mentioned Sandy Denny before. And when we talk about the tracks, we'll, we'll talk about Sandy Denny, who, who was uh, the, the person who did the duet on the Battle of Evermore with, with Robert Plant. Sandy Denny was a brilliant British folk rock singer. She was the lead singer at the time of, of a group called Fairport Convention. And all of the band members of Led Zeppelin absolutely loved Fairport Convention. But Plant completely loved Sandy Denny and her voice. And he said, we, we have to bring her in. She has to do the song with us. So they bring in Sandy Denny and she does the Battle of Evermore with, her, with them. But Sandy Denny lived a very tragic life. Uh, so she struggled with manic depression, drugs and alcohol. And she ultimately died only seven years later at the age of 31 when she fell down a flight of stairs and died of a brain hemorrhage. So you've got this tragic element of Sandy Denny and the beautiful voice that she does the duet with Plant on. And I also read a story and I, I couldn't find it in more than one place, but there was at least one story that I read where supposedly Sandy Denny was one of the singers that Paige con considered for the lead singer for Zeppelin as well. So really interesting dynamics on the things that might have been. You know, I didn't come across that last bit that you mentioned in my uh, in my research, but um, one of the names that we didn't mention for the al uh, for the album was Runes, which uh, refers to those four symbols that you talked about earlier. And you know, your last story really rings true because I couldn't understand why Sandy Denny actually was uh, allowed to make the fifth rune for the album, and it appears on the inside. Uh, uh, in the uh, album liner, you know, so you had the four members with their own, but you know, I was thinking this random woman from this band I'd never heard of. Jimmy Page says, why don't you make a rune too? But now, you know, after your story, it makes sense. He had a long history with her and a lot of respect. Yeah, absolutely. They, they had a tremendous amount of respect for Sandy Denny. So, all right. Does that wrap up our, some things you <sighs> might not know? I, I, it does for me. And I hope, I hope we did okay with this one. This, this was, it's hard for like these classic albums to give people things that they might not know. So I, I hope we did okay. Uh, for me, it's all new because I didn't know nothing. So uh, I actually kind of enjoyed doing the research on this one. All right. So I guess we're now at the track review. Do you want to say, Hey, hey mama said the way you move, gonna make you sweat, gonna make you groove. Uh, if you were looking for me to come in with the uh, that riff, uh, <laughs> yeah. So this one is Black Dog, and I, I was hoping that you'd actually have your guitar in studio with you, Tone, and you would have played for me. I just strum chords, man. I I, I don't do <laughs> I don't do riffs. Um, yeah. So the first track is Black Dog, and and what a great way to start an album, right? I mean. <sighs> The, the cool recording studio sound, 
you know, and we've talked about like interesting sounds to start start a song. This is exactly that. It starts the album off with these like cool, you know, machine sounds, and then that driving riff and the powerful vocals from Plant. Just an awesome way to start an album. Yeah, I love that. And what was interesting uh, in the research was that you know, so as you know, as you said, you know, Paige uh, uh, mixed all the uh, the songs on the album. And the way that came about was that wasn't something that they intentionally created for the song. What it was, was that uh, there were three tracks that he was uh, laying in together. And uh, usually, you you know, you get them lined up so that they're starting at the same time. For whatever reason, he had that one track with the guitar started earlier. And instead of just like cutting that off, he said, oh, you know what? I'll just leave that in there. It sounds pretty cool. And, and he's totally right. It sounds awesome. Oh, it sounds amazing. Yeah. And, you know, so besides that great opening and that that riff into that acapella, I I, I love it the, towards the end, the ah, uh, ah, uh, ah, uh, ah. Uh. And to me, what, uh. what, I try to listen first and take my notes before I look into these things, right? Because I don't want to be uh, biased by anything that you might read. So my notes before I read anything about this album were this song sounds like dudes that like to get it on. And no, is it right? I mean, it's it's just these guys sound like they're ready to go. You know, whatever the it on is, they're ready for it. Yep. All right. So next up is rock and roll. Bill, you want to tell us what you think about that? So rock and roll starts out with this amazing drum opening. And the riff was inspired by a Little Richard song, Keep a Knocking. And if you listen to Keep a Knocking, you can hear that drum riff. It is exactly that. So uh, um, Bonham's amazing and just brilliant, but it is a, a straight steal uh, from the, the opening of Keep a Knocking from Little Richard. Absolutely. And and it's not a unconscious deal. I mean, you know, it was conscious. They, he was messing around with that as looking for some inspiration. So uh, it, it wasn't a, 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 a he's so fine situation. No, no not, not at all. Not at all. Yeah. And, and you've got, you know, the, the wah-wah pedal in full effect on this song. And for me, this is when I think of Led Zeppelin, this is like my go-to song. I absolutely love rock and roll. It is just a phenomenal rock and roll song it, it's so lively and upbeat and driving and it's just an amazing song yeah so to me the title says it all this is rock and roll this song is timeless and i think when i when i heard it my uh, what i wrote down was a slightly harder edged chuck berry you know i could imagine you know if if you um dialed up chuck berry v- a little bit v- very much an oh, it's, uh, uh, almost an homage to chuck berry mm-hmm. yes and and because the early Beatles also um, you know modeled Chuck Berry, I was thinking of sort of early to mid period Beatles too. Yep. I yeah. Totally no, completely imagine. agree. Yeah, um, completely agree. And then the last thing, as I was listening to, I said, "Boy, I was listening to that riff. I was saying, what is that making me think of?" <laughs> to me, that guitar riff, Tom Petty and the Heartbreakers take it for running down a dream. If you go back, listen to "Running Down a Dream," and I think that that guitar riff. Yeah, no, okay, yeah, agreed. Really, no, I, I can hear it. I I can hear it in my head right now. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> so, rock and roll, so great the, song. Oh, great, great song. The other thing I would mention with rock and roll is this is one of the tracks that they actually have some help on. So, Ian Stewart, who is the piano player on this track, Ian Stewart, one of the 
co-founders of the Rolling Stone, Ian Stewart, the longtime you know band manager, roadie for the Rolling Stones, Ian Stewart, who inspired on physical gra- graffiti, Boogie with Stew. Like that's Boogie with Stew is Ian Stewart, like which I like holy moly, like connections, you know. So really, really cool. So track three. The Battle of Evermore. You mentioned earlier, that's the Sandy... Sandy Denny. So just an amazing, amazing track. You know, the whole medieval vocal harmonies, the, you know, the the plant vocals, the Sandy Denny vocals, the the way that they play off each other in this song, just so amazing. So I have to tell you that this, like the first two songs, I was like, oh man, maybe I'm wrong about Led Zeppelin. This is great stuff. And then we get to the Battle of Evermore and my notes, Ugh. Oh, you're killing me, dude. Ugh. Such, Such an amazing, amazing folky song. Uh, like so, so cool. It's so prog rock. The lyrics have all those, the pretensions of, of you know, Yes and Jethro Tull and Rush and, and the Moody Blues. Like people, get out of your Tolkien books. I mean, stop playing Dungeons and Dragons. God, this Middle Earth hobbity stuff, I can't. It's and Dude, I could not agree with you less. And this like, is it is so effing cool. Piece. Like, it's all, so cool. I mean, yeah, it's all good. Oh, what are you talking it's about? Terrible. It, it, when that song came on, I said, This is why I don't listen to Led Zeppelin. This is why I don't listen to Rush. And, and yes, all this prog rock nonsense is just bad. So, so I wouldn't qualify this as prog rock, but I would qualify it as very folk inspired. And that's why they had Sandy Denny on it, because she she was like the preeminent folk rock singer of, of, of the time in, yeah. in England. So maybe English folk rock is the Tolkien Middle Earth Hobbit stuff, because I know what folk I mean, Joni Mitchell's folk music, CSN. Uh, and, and Neil Young, that's folk music. Dylan's folk music. But, but this stuff remember, is different. You have to remember, you know, they're at Headley Grange, which is this, you know, old structure built in the 1700s that was originally used as a, as a workhouse. It, the ownership changed hundreds of times over the years. And it becomes reimagined as this recording studio. It's this, you know, crazy old medieval feeling building. And it's inspired writing the song and and what's great is all those centuries the the groundskeeper gandalf he <laughs> was there the whole time you're killing me dude you're killing me you're killing me the engineer <sighs> dumbledore was amazing <laughs> dude you're killing me <laughs> uh, but but i'll tell you one thing that uh i learned about this song that was pretty cool was um uh, Jimmy Page plays the mandolin on this one, and he had never played the mandolin before. And the reason why the 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 tune sounds kind of odd is because he wasn't an accomplished mandolin player. So it was John Paul Jones's mandolin. That's why it was there. And and Page picked it up, and I guess maybe was inspired by the whoever was playing the mandolin. I love it. Give me more mandolin. All right, cowbell, well... cowbell, mandolin. I want more. Well, I think you get more. So let's get on to uh, track number four, a little song called Stairway to Heaven. So you're going to tell me you're going to tell me you don't like Stairway to Heaven, too. Um, the first six minutes of this monstrosity <laughs> are, 
The first, oh my God. The first six minutes of this song are as annoying as the Dude, drivel. Eight, eight on minutes, eight minutes of pure musical genius. Two minutes of musical genius that follow six minutes of Dungeons and Dragons. Dude, you're freaking killing me. After the solo, uh, and when Plant lets those uh, those uh, th- those verses rip, that's great. That's a great rock and roll song. It's the whole epic, sweeping rock song. It, it you know, it's it's Bohemian Rhapsody. I mean, it, it's it, it's before Bohemian Rhapsody. It's Bohemian Rhapsody, right? It, it's it's that epic, sweeping rock song. All right. Well, look, you're not convincing me, but I'm not trying to convince you. All right. So shall we move on? We shall. Okay. We shall. So now in the spirit of good rock and roll, Missy Mountain Hop, first track on side B, that is just a great rocker. It's unpretentious. It's like just rock and rollers doing rock and roll. Tremendous rock and roll song. And the the, the cool thing that they did on Missy Mountain Hop, and they did this on another song as well, is they had Bonham put the drums in the hall in, in Headley Grange. And you had the like really cool drum sound on it from playing in the wide open hall in Headley Grange. So yeah. really just an amazing song. Yeah, it's uh, not just wide open, but also tall. It was like two to three stories high. So that, that reverb was definitely something that is unique. They got it kind of naturally with the, yeah, exactly. With the, they, versus doing it mechanically, they got it naturally yeah. with, the, with the facility. So, which is really amazing. So. Although I did see a, 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 a piece on this where it wasn't all natural. That is a popular misconception. Um, I'm sure they enha- I'm sure they enhanced it. It but was they, definitely the, the... enhanced mechanically. You, nevertheless, you still had to have that original, those original acoustics to then fiddle with further to get that great drum sound. Well, and you've got, you know, the combination of the, the incredible bass line from John Paul Jones you know, Paige is just a virtuoso on the guitar and, and Bonham is just amazing. And then and then Plant's vocals. I mean, you can't ask for more. I agree. This is everything that's good about Led Zeppelin. All right. So next, track six, the second track on side two, Four Sticks. Really cool drums on this song. Talking about uh, drums. Yeah. I mean, the, the way that he did it is he was he played with four sticks in each hand. I mean, and you get just this amazing drum sound on this song. To me, yeah, the, the 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 four sticks of it really sounds tribal, primal. Like I, I just love it. It it, it feels the the, the, dri- the driving sound that you that he gets out of out of it is amazing, and and the guitar riff that goes with it is phenomenal. Yeah. So yeah, so really cool song. Track seven or side two. Track three is going to California. So this is their acoustic. Take it down a bit, right? So just a a, a folky acoustic, heartfelt plant vocal journey into California telling the story of love and what it was like and and whatnot and it's a beautiful song and I think Probably it's also not my favorite not my favorite on the album but I, I I definitely enjoy it and I think it's also uh recounting a tale of uh some trouble with the police and uh, and a drug bust <laughs> I believe so yes so one of the things I read about this was that supposedly the the folk inspiration was Joni Mitchell because plant apparently like you know many other people was obsessed with her and i almost i think and i i should have jotted this down in my notes but i think there's even a reference to uh joni in the song and of course california uh is uh an important touch 
point for her as well. So this song definitely has a lot of uh, Joni Mitchell vibes in it. Yeah, agreed. All right, take us home. All right, last track is When the Levy Breaks. This is the only cover on the album. It's a cover of a song by Memphis Minnie and Kansas Joe McCoy. You talk about two songs that are the same song that could not sound any more different if you tried to make them sound different. Um, it is very clearly a cover. I mean, word for word, it is a cover. But talk about a song that was completely reimagined. So listen to the original, listen to the Led Zeppelin version. They're both excellent. But this is a different song that they reimagined. Um, and the again, the pounding, plotting drums, the slow drums, the, the powerful riff, the plant vocals, just an amazing song. And those those big open hallways of Headley Grange with the drums on this one, kill it. Amazing. Absolutely. And um, I, I went back and I did listen to the uh, the Memphis Mini version. And you're not joking. Word for word. Like it wasn't, they weren't even playing yeah. with it. Word for nope. word. They, word for they word. It didn't change a word. Yep. Not one. Yeah. And uh, it, it couldn't be more different. So the comments I have here is like, I don't know if we, t- we touched on the, the, uh, the connection to the Rolling Stones and and this song really gives me all kinds of Let It Bleed vibes. I get Gimme Shelter and Midnight Rambler in here. It's so I agree. swampy yep. and yep. like I love those songs. And I and what I love about them is that that dirtiness, that you know, a swampy, grungy, and, and you get that all throughout this song. And my other comment is musical threads and connections uh, on this album. And, you know, that's a common theme that we like to hit on. And how can we not mention just that Memphis mini from the 30s to Led Zeppelin in the 70s and then to the Beasties and Ryman and Steelen? You know, that's but it's not a joke. How great is, you know, I I never heard Led Zeppelin. So the first time I heard that um, that drum beat was on the Beastie Boys. Ryman and Steelen, yeah, exactly. you know, yep. and and I was like, oh man, <laughs> this is cool. And it turns out, you know, it's uh, these guys. So, um, but but that's but again, like you said, this is the thread that we keep talking about: how copying and carrying forward and whatnot. It's not. It's it's taking art and building on it. It's it's reimagining and reinventing art in a way that transforms it into something different. And it's it's amazing to listen to. Yeah, and this is a non sequitur that we'll probably cut, but I was watching the film Tar uh, last night starring Kate Blanchett uh, about a music uh, uh, orchestra conductor, and she talks about the same exact thing. It's like these pieces that have been written hundreds of years ago, you need to, um, to make it your own, reinterpret it. There's nothing wrong with taking their work and finding something different. It, it creates a new piece of art. All right. So that's the beauty of like, you know, uh, these LPs that are only 44 minutes long. Well, and I, I love the the eight tracks, 44 minute album. Absolutely. And it's so easy to listen to and just digest. Mm-hmm. And, and it's easy to consider as a piece Yeah. When, when it starts to get more bloated. It's like, how, how do I even process this as a single piece of art? Because it's so uh, overweight. Yeah, no, great. And it started making me think about the, our, CD, our, our, our cassette tapes, you know, the, the 90 minute, you know, TDK with 45 minutes on the side was just perfect for, you know, you could get a whole album every time the whole album fit on one side. 
45 minutes of music is a little bit of perfection. Yeah. All right. So we'll, I'll get off my, uh, my soapbox. Get off the soapbox. <laughs> yeah. All right. I think we got a bit of business to take care of now. All right. Let's do it. All right. You know what the next section is, Tone? It is our song draft. And for anybody who is new to our podcast, our song draft is when Tony and I take turns picking tracks from the album. One of us goes first and we alternate and we take, we take picks of the tracks from the album. We each create a team of songs. And at the end of the episode, Tony has his team of songs. I have my team of songs. We post it out to a Google form and we ask our audience to decide who did better. Who picked the better team of songs from the classic album that we discussed? So today, Tone, since I went first on our last album, which was Taylor Swift's Red, you get to go first on one of my favorite albums of all time. So you showed me a kindness on Red and you had first pick, but you left my favorite, you know, one of my favorite songs of all time uh, to me. I'm going to return the favor despite being for decades the number one rock and roll song of all time. I am not going to take Stay Away to Heaven with the first pick, and I am going to take Rock and Roll. So you picked my absolute favorite Led Zeppelin song as your number one. Oh, um, I was trying to do you a kindness. So, so I, I I don't blame you for picking Rock and Roll. I love I, that. That's my favorite Led, Led Zeppelin song. So I, I will take Stay Away to Heaven number two. I'm going to take Black Dog. Um, I've got to go Misty Mountain. Yes, you do. When the Levee Breaks. I'm going to go four sticks. See, now um, that makes sense because I'm sure judging from how glowingly you spoke about Evermore, you really wanted to take it there, but you knew that I wasn't going to take it because I hate it. So I'm going to take the Battle of Evermore. <laughs> You're such a contrarian. <sighs> but you know, you want it, you know, if, if you, if I didn't tell you how much I hated Evermore, would you still have gone four sticks there? Oh, I, I would have taken Evermore there. Okay, yes. so um, but I I didn't I didn't, and I am fine with getting as the last pick on the album going to California. All right. So to recap, I picked first, and my team is Rock and Roll, Black Dog, When the Levee Breaks, and The Battle of Evermore. And I've got Stairway to Heaven, Misty Mountain, Four Sticks, and Going to California. Okay, so I finally didn't let you take advantage of me being transparent about my feelings about these songs at the end of draft. So um, I know people like Battle of Evermore, Evermore so uh, I hope that will help carry me to victory. So, uh, Bill, do you have any final thoughts uh, on this album after listening to it these last couple of weeks? I have to say that I've listened to this album so many times. It's one of my all-time favorite albums. I've had so much fun sitting and listening to this album over and over. I've had it on repeat for like the last several weeks where I, I think I've probably listened to it 20 times in the last couple of weeks, just over and over and over again. And it's not something I easily tire of. Um, it's something I, I can really listen to and enjoy almost every single time I, I listen to it. So I wasn't fast forwarding through songs. I wasn't skipping songs. I absolutely love this album. Plant is just amazing that, you know, his, his vocal range and power, absolutely amazing. Page is just a, a virtuoso on the guitar. John Paul Jones doesn't get as much love as he probably deserves on the bass. And Bonham is just spectacular on the drums. So the thing that probably stands out other than 
you know, obviously Page and Plant, but Bonham's drums are are what put this over the top for me and why it's such a spectacular album. Yeah, I can't disagree with any of that. I think that just on the musicianship and the vocals, just I understand why they are so well regarded, why they're so important in rock history and why this album is so well regarded. I remember when we were watching that documentary that we talked about earlier, I turned to you, I said, because they, they showed a lot of live clips or a number of live clips from Led Zeppelin. I said, wow, I can't imagine what that vibe and energy in an arena must have been like, because those guys, must have been it, insane. It's, it, they really, really oozed rock and roll. It was, it was great. So <laughs> it, you know, I, I listened to this also probably 20 times and, a couple of days ago, it was on yet again, and Colleen walks into the room and she goes, oh my God, when are you going to record this pod so we can stop listening to Led Zeppelin? Ah. <laughs> <laughs> <sighs> uh. But I'll tell you, so I mentioned earlier at the top that, you know, I had no, uh, no background with Led Zepp. So this was really all first listens, like truly first listens of the album. And the parts that I liked, I really like. The parts that I didn't, I didn't, but I totally get who they are and why uh, they're as important as they are. So with all that, Bill, where does this rank on your personal list? All right. So. We talked at the beginning of the episode about how it has been kind of in the 60s and 50s in the Rolling Stone list. And the most recent list, I think it's 58. So it's you know right in the 50s. I think it's a gross miscarriage of justice ranking this in the 50s. This album is a top 10 album of all time. There's no doubt in my mind. This ranks as my number seven album of all time. It is a spectacular album. It is it just mastery at the highest level and just absolute brilliance. And I enjoyed listening to it. The first time I listened to it, I enjoy listening to it today just as much as the first time I listened to it. Just absolutely brilliant. All right. Well, I guess that just about does it for us. Thank you all for listening to another B&T Excellent Adventure in Music. Our next episode will be 1984 by Van Halen. Oh, I can't. The soundtrack of my freaking teenage years. Are you going to be wearing spandex and doing uh, leg kicks? Dude, I, I'm going to be wearing like the half, you know, remember, remember when, when like the half shirts, you know, like the, the, when guys had like the half shirts, Yeah, of course. like I'm going to be wearing one of those. Yep. I'm going to be wearing one of those. No, but I want to see <laughs> flying roundhouses. A, a little, a little uh, David Lee flying yes. kick. We're, we're definitely going to have to video uh, the next show so that we can uh, see your kicks. There'll be, there's going to be a lot of vocals in the next. So I got to get, I got to get my my pipes ready for the next next episode. So awesome! So seriously, guys, thanks for listening, and can't wait till next week. Thank you, everybody, and we out. <laughs>